Hi, everyone, and welcome to the ESG Agenda. I'm Amelia Pan. As we wrap up Season 3, I wanted to say thank you to all of our dedicated listeners who have helped grow this podcast since its launch in June 2020. We've built a unique global community, and I've enjoyed engaging with you and receiving your feedback on each episode. I'll be moving on as host of this podcast, but this isn't the end for the ESG Agenda. The team are hard at work on developing Season 4 as we speak. Over the last three seasons, we've had the privilege of talking to key players in the ESG ecosystem who are shaping the policies and conversations about how environmental, social, and governance issues are integrated into corporate behavior and decision-making, from corporate leaders to policymakers to influential global investors and others. You'll recall our first-ever episode with SASB CEO Janine Guillant. Let's listen back. In the early days of the pandemic, there were still significant flows into ESG funds, ESG marketed funds, which I found really interesting. And I do think that we will continue to see flows from investors who believe that effective management of ESG issues by companies really does improve reputation, brand, resilience. I would say resilience is a very important word. And therefore, these are companies that are able to deliver long-term value. I think we'll see that. I think that one important thing, though, uh, for everyone, particularly IR professionals who are interacting with investors to understand, is there is a process versus product distinction in this whole ESG conversation. So often when people talk about ESG, they talk about it through the lens of investment product. And by product, I mean a specific fund or that is marketed as an ESG fund generally to retail consumers. That's one way to think about this. The other way to think about this is through a process view which is an investment manager integrating ESG into investment decision-making from a process perspective across all of its offerings. And that is really important distinction to understand. And I think sometimes the process side gets lost in the general conversation. So I think the much bigger change, to be honest, than the product side is the process side. And I think it's the process side that has the most significant implications for IR professionals over time. We've also had the chance to hear firsthand from board directors on how ESG is impacting their duties on corporate boards. First, Karina Litvak of Italian energy giant Eni joined us to discuss the importance of climate governance on board agendas. The stakeholder that matters more than anybody else is the investors. Boards that tend to disregard the importance of climate change also call it correlation rather than causation, also tend to regard stakeholders as secondary, as opposed to seeing stakeholder engagement as a truly strategic part of decision-making as something that can enhance decision-making, can enrich the information sources that boards get in order to reach good decisions. So coming back to the investors, when investors, and particularly the very large ones, come out and say something that frankly is not that earth shattering, but it's just who says it, that just gets so much resonance in the boardroom. 
Are you referring to Larry Fink and BlackRock? For example, right? Um, that, that was just transformational. I mean, the moment that that letter came out in, in January from Larry Fink, many, many boards that had been, that had been quite frankly, obstructive, realized that this was not going away. Now, they may have attributed reasons that were not the right ones to this. They may think, oh, you know, he's just being politically correct. But whatever reason they give for it, they're realizing that this matters in a way that they didn't before. Then, Betsy Atkins of Wynn Resorts and Volvo Cars joined us to look at the relationship between boards, shareholders, and stakeholders. Absolutely, the activists are going to use ESG. It will be the Trojan horse into the boardroom. So, you know, a couple of uh, years ago, uh, they might have focused on operational inefficiency. They would always focus on board entrenchment where you have, you know, the majority of the board with tenure above 15 years. Those kinds of governance issues will still be used. Gender diversity on the board, ethnic diversity, they'll use all of that. But ESG will be the biggest focus, I believe, uh, for activists uh, this coming year. And I think it's worth noting, if you go back to the implosion and downturn of 08, there were about 85 to 90 activist proxy actions a year had been the historic average for the previous decade before 08. But in 09, it went up by 50% and now has gone back down to the same approximate 90. So I think that board members and directors listening should expect, again, a 50% increase, I think, in 21 and late 20 in activism. Significant increase, I would expect. They've got big war chests. They're waiting. They're working on their thesis. And I think uh, if you don't have a good ESG story and you're in the bottom half of your peers, I think you better get your ESG story figured out. In season two, we spoke with Nathan Fabian of UNPRI to hear how the EU taxonomy aims to fight greenwashing by companies and asset managers. So we're not just talking about a green niche here. We're talking about the heart of the industrial economy ultimately needs to transition to meet these criteria. Now, a typical company in an industrial sector today might have a very low proportion of their activities that meets the criteria in the taxonomy. But over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, if they want to contribute to environmental goals and not, you know, not face more harsh regulation, environmental pricing and, and taxation, then they're going to have to make 100%. So this is a transition story as much as it is, as only picking the companies that are already there. We also looked at the key role that stock exchanges play in the ESG conversation with NASDAQ's Evan Harvey. I think there are a few ways that exchanges can really drive things forward. First of all, the challenges around the social part of ESG. I think there's a widespread acceptance that environmental reporting is sort of commonplace now. Governance reporting, so I'm talking about the E and the G part of ESG, uh, are, is much more established and has been around for a long time. What is your board function? How often does it meet? What are the minutes? You know, those kinds of procedural questions. But the S, the social part, has always been the trickiest to measure. And I think that, as we were just talking about, 
the twin crises of the last few months have forced us to look at ways to quantify social performance for companies in a way that we haven't before. So how do we start to put numbers around human rights? How do we start to put performance metrics around people feeling safe at work? Uh, how do we rethink what the company physically is if 90% of your company is physically working somewhere else? So those kinds of things have been the challenges lately. And I think that what we can do is try to provide recommendations, common sense, uh, metrics, um, performance indicators, working with the largest standard setters in the world and, and smart people who have great ideas in every corner of the market to try to find that limited handful of, of numbers that really do measure performance and help decision makers like investors in particular figure out which companies are changing, adapting and persevering and which companies are not. Andrew Morlett, CEO of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, discussed why it's so important for the world to transition from a linear economy to a circular economy and why it's critical to ensure that we don't leave others behind in the process. One of the things we launched was the Global Commitment. Global Commitment uh, brought together initially a, a small number of companies that said we are going to commit to only put compostable, reusable or recyclable plastics on the market by 2025. So for you know, a number of the world's largest FMCG companies to say that that was their objective, working with us, we actually created a Global Commitment and we've now got uh, over a thousand uh, organizations in that commitment. And what it does is it, it gives a, a vision for a system that is consistent with the circular economy, and it gives very tangible objectives. And it really has focused these organizations to think really carefully in terms of, you know, what do we need to eliminate out of the packaging? There's a tremendous need for elimination of packaging uh, to keep the numbers down because it's a, such a leaky system. And then how do we innovate for reuse and keeping packaging in the system? And then how do we actually create the right materials to be able to be recycled uh, so they can come back and flow into the system? So that was sort of the thinking behind that whole approach. And it's been quite successful, but there's a tremendous amount that needs to be done. In season three, we dug deeper into the data that fuels ESG ratings and assessments with the CEO and co-founder of True Value Labs, Henrik Bartel. I think from an ESG perspective, I think there, there's certainly three sets of data that, that should be looked at. I think there's sort of the fundamental ESG data, which is the data that is reported by a company where they have poured thousands of hours into surveys into into writing their 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 beautiful sustainability reports and and making that uh, accessible to a manager i think that is one set of data i think i call that the esg fundamental data and i think we should sort of pin the the, the topic of survey fatigue and, and and i have a whole separate sort of opinion on that and, and why that is but i think sort of fundamental data is is one set of of the data sets from an esg perspective that the investor is is looking at or ought to look at then the second set is, is sort of the, the true value labs kind of data, the external objective data that excludes pretty much company self-reported information. And that sort of said, let's look at everything else but the company self-reported information because we really care about sort of seeing the outside in picture rather than just the inside out picture. So that's the second set of, of information. What would fall into that? 
I think news is part of it. I think that's sort of 20% of, of what we're ingesting. But then there is governmental, non-governmental organizations, watchdog organizations, academic research, social media. Um, it's a much larger body of work that all of a sudden is, is able to be accessed by algorithms that can parse all of this data in seconds. So there's just so much information, right? That, that a human analyst is just not capable of keeping up with that. So there needs to be ways, um, computer ways, uh, computer software driven ways in order to keep up with all of this information. So that's, that's the second set of information. Then the third set of information is um, location-based data, in my opinion. And location-based data can be expressed as climate data, as climate risk data. Um, and and I, I don't call it specifically climate data because there's so much that contributes to a location-based data set. Climate is one piece, weather is another piece. I think cultural sort of differences and, and supplier differences in, in a certain location might be another set of information that could be looked at. And in our latest episode, Emily Chu of Morgan Stanley joins us to discuss how investors evaluate board ESG performance. We've also seen companies, and I think this is very interesting, set up dedicated analyst calls just to discuss sustainability. And I think that that's a very worthwhile initiative as well, partly because the quarterly earnings call can get very tied into the quarterly earnings statement and the the quarterly financial statements. And a lot of these sustainability topics are not necessarily quarter to quarter issues. And the discussion that you might want to have might be a much higher level, longer term discussion. And there may not be space on a quarterly earnings call to communicate everything you'd like to communicate around it. So I think that, you know, coinciding with the release of some form of written annual reporting, it's a very wise idea to also establish an annual habit of an annual sustainability analysts call. As season three comes to a close, I'd like to take a moment to thank all of you, our listeners, for all of your support, listens, downloads, and the conversations that the agenda has prompted. The ESG agenda will return with season four in the autumn of 2021. I look forward to listening along with all of you as ESG continues to be a forefront concern for corporates, investors, and stakeholders everywhere. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.